This is a listing of the Sunday school classes for the summer. Um, starting next week, next Sunday morning, you want to make it a priority to be part of Sunday school. You'll see the adult classes on one side, the children and youth on the other, so you can uh, be enriched and grow in your faith by attending these classes and participating in them. The other note you'll see in the bulletin that Pastor Stephen Sprague is going to be helping us with worship this morning. He's going to lead communion. He's an ordained pastor in the PCA. They've hit Madison, his wife, and his family have been worshiping with us for some time and have become members. He is teaching at Heritage Christian Academy full-time. So from time to time, he's going to be able to help us, and we appreciate that very much. It's wonderful to have him and his family here with us. Let's now look at Genesis once again. Uh, we have just come from the mountaintop of biblical redemptive history. Genesis 12. It's, uh, gets, it should get any Christian excited to read those verses in the opening of Genesis 12. Mountaintop. Uh, this is where you have God um, intervening to speak to Abram, who wasn't looking to be spoken to, just like you and I, and he speaks salvation to him, gives him promises uh, that are amazing and far-reaching and eternal in their significance. Uh, the high point of the Old Testament to this point is Genesis chapter 12, the first verses. Now we come to verse 10. It never takes long. Never takes long. Abraham is at Abram still at this point. His name hasn't been changed yet. Um, he serves really as a model believer. And make no mistake, he's a believer. He trusts in God's salvation. He believes what God has said about these promises that will ultimately mean Jesus, and it was counted to him as righteousness, saved by faith in God's Savior. Same way you're saved, same way we're all, we all know we're right with God, if we rest in the finished work of God's Savior, Jesus, his Christ, our Christ. Same way, Abraham just looks ahead to this. He's a believer, but we come to verse 10 after this mountaintop experience. They've been in the promised land for some time in Canaan. And now a trial faces him. And let's watch what unfolds here in the life of Abram, starting at verse 10 of Genesis 12. As you might expect, it has immediate relevance for us in our walk with God. This is God's holy word. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife in all that he had. 
Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, we see in Abram to some degree a picture of the Christian life. So strong on the one hand, yet so inconsistent on the next. Help us to understand what is happening in this passage and by the aid of your Holy Spirit to apply what we learn to the pilgrimage called life that you have us on. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here we see even a model believer, a model believer can forget God in his daily life, which unsurprisingly leads to a great amount of difficulties. Even mature Christians are inconsistent in their acknowledgement of God in their life. I don't mean to say they're constantly making choices to sin. That's not what we have happening here. But we see him, Abram, not acknowledging God when he's about to embark in a major move, a major move that would be outside of the mission that God described. How much do we consider God in the day-to-day decisions that we make? Do we think there are some areas of our life that we just kind of run and we give the rest of it to God? You know, what job I will take, whether I'll move, who I'll marry, what school I'll go to, how I'll raise my children. Do we think some of these areas are things that we just do? Um, God saved us. We know our eternity is secure. We go to church. We worship. um, We acknowledge God on the whole. But in particular, everyday events and decisions and actions that we take, we sometimes forget him altogether, even as believers. And that's essentially what you have happening here. I noticed this to be true in, in my own life and in the lives of others as I became a pastor some 25 years ago and came to Redeemer. Now, where I grew up, people pretty much had the same job in the same factory and they never moved. When I got to this area, at that time, Sprint was just growing big. Many corporations were, were growing and burgeoning, and people were moving to this area. It was a very transient area, uh, especially in the late 90s and the first, five, first 10 years of the 2000s. Maybe some of you remember how transient it was. Maybe you came in that time or you've come and you've gone. But it seemed like someone would come new to the church, and then within two or three years, they'd be gone. They'd be involved and engaged, and they'd be gone to take another job. They'd, the, the, the guy would usually come with his family. He gets a mid-level management-type position or whatever. It'd be a great job as far as I could tell, but they were gone within three or four years. And I would get close to people, especially when I was a youth pastor, get close to them and their kids, and they'd be gone within four years. And it was, it was just kind of hard to take. I didn't know uh, what drove this kind of thing. Uh, but I... And I, I saw them as strong believers. These were really uh, Christians who were trusting God, engaged in the church, cared about what their children's discipleship looked like, were providing for themselves and for ministries even. Uh, what was it that um, moved them around so much? And I thought there had to be some real spiritual answer to it. And this is when I really discovered how inconsistent we can be as believers who on the outside look very committed and mature. And maybe we are uh, on most scales. But there was one particular case I remember, and I could give you five of these because it happened often, but one guy that I got close to pretty soon after he got here, right after we got here, very welcoming to Sherry and I. We're talking 25 years ago now. Um, And they had a young family. Kids were almost school age. So he dove into everything church-related, and so did she. And they were engaged with the youth ministry, with the school we had just started. Um, Kids there, he was on the school board pretty soon after, was working in every facet of service you can imagine in the church. Just a real encouragement to everyone involved. Um, And he had a job in town that he came for that was a really good job. By anything I could calculate, it looked really good. Now, it was a a business um, that was owned by a family. So I think in his mind, it only went so far because the family owned it. So he was looking for other jobs in the same field anywhere it would take him. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time. I thought they were here for, for a long time. 
I mean, certainly if you're with your, talking to your pastor, you might mention at some point, hey, I'm wrestling with this issue. Or if not your pastor, your Christian friends, have a lot of Christian friends around. Um, but within about three years after he was here, all of a sudden he announced that they're moving across the country. Just it seemed so abrupt to everybody. He was engaged in all these things. And it, he kind of came off like it should be a no-brainer to everybody when I tell you this story of how I got this job. And it's clearly a move better for me and for my family and so, more, so forth. Now, it is not a sin issue, so I didn't feel comfortable really approaching it much. I just remember when we talked a little, I did say, hey, what made you make the decision? Because I kind of felt left out a little bit. Like, yeah, I would have loved to have prayed for you if I knew you were not happy with the job you had. Um, and we had this discussion, and, and he, he apologized for that. And I, he didn't owe me an apology, but just as friends, it just felt odd. And then I said, well, certainly, and I'm a young guy. He was older than me, and there's a lot of wise men in the church at that time, as there are now. And he said, I said, did you ask any of the guys, any of the brothers that you're so close with what they thought? He goes, oh, I didn't really bring it up with them. Everyone was surprised. Now, I bring that out to say that that was not unusual. Um, that was a commonplace thing where a huge decision would be made by a person and a family and would affect a lot of things. And they didn't ask anybody around. I'm not saying they didn't pray about it. I'm not making that judgment. I'm just saying it's amazing how big a decision there is, yet there would be a move like that. And so I remember talking further after that with him as years went on, stayed connected with him, still friends with him today. And he would say the Lord's hand was upon him, um, gifted him in many ways, served everywhere he's gone, but he had to move multiple times after that, like six times after that. Finally settled into a place where they've been for a few years now, many years later. Uh, and he told me recently, he goes, now looking back at that, if I could do all that over again, I probably would have probed that decision a little more. Uh, maybe would have made the same decision. But I realize now that a lot of what I was doing was I was isolating God out of certain areas of my life that I thought were just kind of my responsibility, and I carried, out and I carried on that way. Now, I use that as an example, but I think that all of us can imagine th- during the course of a week, you have a bunch of decisions coming up. Um, how many of those decisions do we sift through the question, Lord, what would honor you in this decision? What would be the best thing for us or for me to do that would glorify you? Now, we have exactly that situation happening with Abram in this, this case. And I believe Moses has it here to really show us a lot of this because it's a, an odd story. Right, you see him leave to go to Egypt and go right back to where he was. Now, it's not that it was a sin to go to Egypt, but we will recognize a big difference in how Abram interacts with God at this moment in verse 10 compared to what we just studied in verses 1 through 9. And I suggest to you that's meant for us to see, and it will unfold in a certain way. And this is a common pattern that we see throughout the Scriptures, and we see the pattern in our own life. Uh, Even model Christians can forget God in their daily lives, and that leads to these problems. Think about what happens in Abram's life. First, he's be graced by God. Uh, He's given this promises, these salvific promises that give him benefits in his life. Then, even though he's been given these promises, for a moment he takes his eyes off of God, responds to a trial that comes his way, and tries to get himself out of it. That's the second thing that happens. And then it leads to all sorts of problems for everyone around him. Of course, God intervenes, and ultimately God's plan is not thwarted, but you see all the, the rocky road that happens as a result of not keeping God and his calling on his life in perspective as he went forward. That's what you see. Be graced by God, forget God, difficulties ensue, and of course, we can count on it. God does always sustain his people. This isn't a matter of him not being a Christian anymore. This is a matter of a Christian who gets wobbly. Put it this way, as Ken Hughes said it, he did not deny God. He simply forgot him at this moment. 
He forgot how great his God is in the face of even a famine. Let's walk through the passage a bit together and see how this unfolds. Now, we have to go back in our minds to the early part of chapter 12 to be set up for understanding the significance of verses 10 and following. In the early part of chapter 12, we see Abram showed the great grace of God. In verse 1 of chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now look closely at the mission or the purpose God has in calling Abram. Yes, he will receive personal blessings, but so many are going to benefit by what God is describing here, this grace he's showing to Abram personally, and then his family, and then to the nations even as people come to know the Messiah who comes from Abram. I will give you new land to live in. I'll make you a great nation. That means I'll give you and Sarai children even in your old age. I will bless you personally and give you a legacy. Your name will be known across the generations. And I will make you a blessing, Abram, through you to the nations. People will come to me, God speaking, to God through Abram's seed that will come. What be gracing we have before us in verse 3 of chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. I'll even protect you in this whole process. You could know that my hand of protection will be upon you because things are going to come. They're in a foreign land with foreign people. Everyone around them uh, are, could be opposition to them. He doesn't know. And I will protect you. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So the begracing that God shows to Abram extends to himself and his wife. They'll have a child who'll become a nation. Secondly, They'll have a land that they will occupy. They won't be nomads any longer. And the nations will benefit. A seed, land, and the nations. These are the three mission purposes of God working out of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's the mission Abram is on, that God's placed him on, and God is bringing him through. Now, that's the high point of the statement of his faith to this point as he receives this mission from God as he's called. But as you know and as I know, faith is always tested. There will be tests that come up against that faith that we have in God and what He's called us to. Things will happen in our lives and in our surroundings that will press upon our faith, that might counter our faith. We have to sift them through what God tells us, what our mission is, what our purpose is, what direction He's given us. A high point of faith followed by a famine in this case, a severe trial, not just a small trial, a severe trial. Faith always tested here, and this test may not be as immediate in your life as it is for Abram, but the tests will come. Every day, small tests about uh, sifting through what you decide to do through what God's called you to do and who He's called you to be. So let's see how forgetting God unfolds here. It says in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. We don't know how much time elapses between verse 9 and verse 10, but sometime after they've been in Canaan, a huge operation. He's got hundreds and thousands of livestock. He's got people he's responsible for, his family, servants. They're they're a small little, you might say, township there in Canaan. And he has Lot, his nephew, in their clan. So this is a massive group of people he's responsible for. And here they are settled to some degree. And now there's a famine that arises. So Abram, it says in verse 10, went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now I'm suggesting to you that this is a forgetting of God. Because compared to what he did earlier when God was leading him to the promised land, 
You see none of that here. There's no building of an altar. There's no acknowledging God who's leading him along. There's a severe trial that comes, a sense of fear that no doubt grips him as he sees this famine coming that could be the end of his people. And he takes matters into his own hand and moves them, which is no small movement, moves them down to Egypt, it seems almost immediately. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Kent Hughes, who I referred to earlier, said it this way, Abram did the natural thing. And herein lies the problem. There's no mention that he sought God's will in the matter. The famine had created the fear of starvation, and Abram then instinctively moved to allay his fear without reference to God or his will. It says in verse 10 that the famine was severe in the land. Now, that's a a packed verse, and I don't want to just pass over it and pass judgment on Abram quickly. Who knows what any of us would have done? In fact, that may have been what God would have told him to do. It wasn't a sinful thing necessarily. It's the fact of his forgetting to, to include God in the process of his movement or what he would do next. That's the issue. Every aspect of our life matters to our Savior, and He can help us with every aspect of it. It's not that some things are here for me to take care of with no reference to God. And so here Abram moves in this way, and it's a severe famine. It's hard for us to picture not having enough to eat. Um, It's not like uh, we're talking about the, the supply chain issues we have. They're nothing like that. This is much more serious. Severe in the land. And so he makes this move down to Egypt where it always seems that there's food. The, the Nile River Delta area has, has uh, lush greenery and able to grow crops and have lots of livestock. And so he goes naturally there to Egypt. You know, it reminds me of how different this is in approach. Uh, just a few verses before in verse 8 of chapter 12. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. As he traveled through the promised land in his trek to see what would be his, uh, he stopped to build an altar and give praise to God. Now a famine comes and he goes. Now let's see what unfolds because it gets worse. This is kind of what, ha- this is what happens. When, when we go out and do something without seeking God first, it tends to snowball because if we didn't seek God and we know we didn't seek God first, we have a twinge, if you will, of maybe I should have or, or I know maybe I'm doing something that God uh, would have something to say about or would there be some principles that might guide the specifics, but I didn't pay attention to those. Now I get myself into a situation where there's trouble. I don't go back to him then and maybe I might be shy to go back to him then, although you can. We just typically don't. We keep doing it our own way. This is what unfolds with Abram. Look at verse 11 of our passage. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, there's a technical truth in what he says about his relationship with Sarah that makes her, you could say that she is his sister, but we know that's not how they're conducting their life. It's a half-truth, which makes it a lie. Um, This is his wife. Um, They are united in matrimony. This is his wife. So he's trying to spin something in order to get out of a situation that would cost him, possibly cost him his life. No, he's not wrong. In those days, um, this is not just one guy coming with a few people. This is a band. These are two moving towns coming to Egypt. Egypt's going to want to maintain a level of dominance over anyone who comes into the land. And one of the ways is they will take stuff from you, including wives. That happened in antiquity like this. And he knew this would be the case. And if he was married, and they, they would just kill him 
and take her. That's what his thought process was. Never mind what this would mean to her, what hardship she would endure because of this. Never mind all that, but just to keep me alive, Abram says, you got to do this. You got to say that you are my sister. He was about to enter Egypt, said to Sarai, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Abram, you should have just stopped there. You're beautiful, honey. That's it. So do me a favor. It's a sad, sad story of what Abram is doing here, and certainly he's not consulting God about this. But let's pause for just one moment, just a small excursus. Who's impressed with Sarai here? 60 to 65 years old, and she is objectively beautiful. I say object. This is not just Abram saying it. The Egyptians agreed. Abram knew her beauty. This is not Instagram beautiful. This is actual beautiful. This is someone who doesn't have filters and take her clothes off and dance around it to be beautiful. That's not all the hers fault in this too. That's just the sick, over-sexualized world we live in. So when we picture beauty, we picture it through the lens of our modern eyes, which is a sad reality, what it's become, what's sold. You've got to get that out of your mind. This is a woman who, in her facial features, her hair, her eyes, her complexion, no doubt, she's beautiful. And it's not just Abram saying it. She's noticed by the Egyptians as well. And he is taking his beautiful wife, this gift of God, and using her as a bartering chip that can hurt her, scar her terribly. It's really an awful story as you think about what he's suggesting here to simply keep himself alive. Verse 13, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Because of you, whatever has to happen to you, I'll be okay. This is the unraveling of when we forget God at the first level, we get ourselves in and we try to get ourselves out, and this is what you see happening. You can recognize how this uh, resonates with us in our lives and the decisions that we sometimes make. From his posture of self-reliance, he deals with a threat without seeking God. That's the famine. Then he makes a plan that includes now lying and exposing his wife to severe mistreatment. All of this comes from leaving God out of the initial decision to leave Canaan in the first place. Maybe God would have said, yes, you should go to Egypt to get food for a time. Maybe he would have led him this way. It's not like that kind of thing doesn't happen again. But in this case, he doesn't ask. He has no assurance of what the provisions would look like. God intervenes and saves, but recognize what's happening interpersonally in, in their relationships now. Rob Rayburn says, Abram had ceased to live by divine revelation and had ceased to count on the promises God had made to him. That is a perfect definition of unbelief. And of course, all our disobedience stems from unbelief. It doesn't mean he didn't believe in God anymore or salvation, but the promises of God were no longer right in front and center. Uh, the promise to preserve him and to keep him um, left his, he didn't believe it at that moment, and he went out on his own. All disobedience comes from this, these lapses in our belief, our full belief in God. I don't mean in salvation. I mean just day to day as we make our decisions as we choose the actions that we will take. So then many difficulties ensue. This is what happens. Uh, look at the resultant difficulties that start picking up in verse 14. Just as Abram predicted, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. It starts to unfold. His dear wife is taken into Pharaoh's house. This doesn't mean his, his you know, 
uh, one-bedroom apartment. This is a palace with a harem. If you think to the story of Esther, often when wives from other nations were taken by these, these various kings and such, Pharaoh, the title for this king of Egypt, here they are, and they're kept in preparation, and, and they're really a display of the king's power and such. So there's no reason to suggest here that she was violated. It seems like almost immediately upon receiving her into the household of Pharaoh, God intervenes. That's the, the blessed nature of God's promises. Despite Abram's actions of disbelief, God intervenes. But here is this terrible hardship, this difficulty that unfolds, is his wife taken from him, placed in Pharaoh's house. And yet, look at Abram here and what he benefits, from, uh, how he benefits. So this had to be like heaping coal a bit on him. Verse 16, and for her sake, he dwelt, dwelt, he dealt well with Abram. I mean, for all Abram knows, he'll never see his wife again, but he's safe at least. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Interestingly, as a side note, the order that's listed there is usually how they would travel in a caravan. So when you would travel in a, in a caravan from one place to another, this is what it would look like. You would have the, ox, the sheep and the oxen, the male donkeys would be separated from the female donkeys, and they put people between, and then so on. Well, the scheme worked, kept him from being killed. Now what does he have? He's lost his wife. He's going to die a widower in Egypt, out of the promised land, with no nation, no seed. But verse 17, the grace of God that always overcomes even human sin, the faithfulness of God, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Great plagues. Uh, the Lord inflicted serious diseases upon Pharaoh's house. That's what it says in some versions. Struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues or strokes, as it says in older versions, either of disease or death or some other calamity, ulcers in some versions. Terrible, painful, whatever it was. And Pharaoh knew this was because of Abram's deceitfulness in his engagement with Sarai, taking Sarai. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. You have a pagan king rebuking the believer in God. Yes, Sarai and Abram are safe, but look at the agony that happens, the, the testimony that is out there and about about Yahweh. God will have his moments of vengeance for sure, but you see the, the uncomfortable, cringy kind of sense you have about this whole episode as it unfolds. Yes, God maintains his promise, you know he will, but look what Abram's done with all of this just by simply leaving him out from the very beginning. Verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had had. He had multiplied his stuff and went back to Canaan or at least back to the Negev. Now, remember the mission that God gave Abram? Do you remember what the Abrahamic covenant, the three main things were? A seed who become the Messiah, a great nation. Land that he could live in where the nation could incubate to the time that it was right. And because of all that, the nations would be blessed when the Savior comes. Do you see all three of these areas challenged by Abram's disbelief. In every case, he took them out of the promised land, almost, almost gave up the land that was given to him. He went down to Egypt, 
almost lost his wife, giving up the possibility of a seed. And rather than showering the nations with blessings, Pharaoh and his courts have boils all over their bodies. This is not the blessing the people of God were supposed to be. But this is what we see unfold. Now, it's not ultimate. We know it's not ultimate. We know that God is still providentially working these things. But it's a, it's a lesson to us about the everydays of our lives and the importance of acknowledging God. Yes, the big plan of God will not be thwarted as we mess up. Praise Him for this. His faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. But we can see that it's the people of God who know better and know Him, rest in Him. We worship Him. It's not saying you're immature or you're a weak believer. But there are so many moments, micro moments in our lives, where we would do so well to pause and ask the Lord, is this what you would have me to do? And if I do it, how might I glorify you in it? Not asking to sin, asking about a choice that's not sinful on the outright. There could be some component of it that turns out to be for you, if it's idolatrous, whatever. But recognize that we have here a bit of a, a, bit of a pattern that unfolds that I know personally happens all too often in my own life. It, it could be anything from like, think of these, these questions you have to, to answer on a regular basis. The, the job you take. Do I, do I take this job? Do I make this move? Do I get this training or go to this college? The friends that I spend time with, or I go this route. We're parents. What should we involve our children in? Now, do we just do what everybody does around? It's not sinful on the out front. Do we just do what we, everyone else does in our area, uh, the next purchase we buy, because that's what you do when you live in Johnson County? Is, do we do it that way, or do we say, oh, Lord, you placed us where you placed us. What might we do now from this place with regard to the college I go to, the, the people I hang out with, the job I take, what activities my kids are in, what friends I have? Go down the what investment to make, where to contribute, where to go. Do I start with, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do for your glory? And then it's difficult sometimes. It's not like God gives you a voice all the time that tells you, but you pause and acknowledge then he gives you people around you that you can seek counsel, godly counsel, people that you know won't come with a bias. They'll just tell you straightforwardly how this might enhance or detract from your growth in Christ. And then when you determine that this could grow in Christ or you could be a, a light here or whatever the case may be, you have a sense in which that you have God's blessing because it's sifted through the Word of God, the people of God have helped, and the Spirit of God's working, and we go forward with a different perspective. Maybe he goes to Egypt if he asks God. But I'll bet you when he gets to Egypt, he's not worried about Pharaoh. Jesus said something that helps us, helps focus us, and I want to uh, pinpoint it here. When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to people that have the same worries and anxieties all of us have. They're following him, they're listening to his teaching. And he says to them, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is, is its own trouble. Later, Paul says something pretty similar that is an encouragement to us. So whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't say, go do all this stuff and then go back retroactively and try to, to put God into it or explain it away on the basis of spiritual talk. It's starting first with that lens that we see it through and in in what we sift our decisions and actions through, through what God would say for us to consider in His mission for us. Rob Rayburn, who I mentioned earlier, makes a good statement that I'll close with. 
He's talking about Abram, just kind of wrestling with Abram. Here's this man of strong faith. We see it over and over, yet such inconsistency at the same time. He said, how are we to explain this? What are we to make of a man who is, of, who is a perfect hero of the faith, one minute, and a sniveling coward who seems not to know that God exists the next? What are we to make of a man whose faith overcomes the world one day and collapses before the world the next? Well, whatever we are to make of it, it is a fact of life through the rest of biblical history. Every believing man or woman that we will meet is going to demonstrate this spiritual schizophrenia, this mixture of spiritual sanity and of the loss of one's spiritual mind, of faith and unbelief, courage and cowardice, obedience and flagrant disobedience. It's helpful, helpful for us to recognize that God did work this situation through and intervene in an amazing way. The salvation of individuals and of the world will not come to pass because of the faithfulness of God's people, but because of God's own faithfulness to His mission. But it behooves us, it credits us, it, it benefits us when we pause just a little bit in the lives that we've been given to sift the things that we're doing and deciding through the lens of Scripture, through what Scripture would say, and through the, the work of the Spirit, testifying to your Spirit, working through other people to just ask the question, is this thing, is this action, is this, this, this decision best for the glory of God? Because if it's best for the glory of, the, of glory of God, it will absolutely be the best for you, the people of God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for the bluntness of your word, for the authenticity of these episodes, and for the people that we meet. We thank you that we can relate. At the same time, we confess that we, like Abram, um, we believe in your, your son, Jesus. We trust in him. We're here gathered to worship you every Lord's day. We love to be with the people of God. Lord, at the same time, very quickly, maybe as soon as right after the service, some decision will face us, some action will have to be taken. I pray, Lord, that we would not forget you, that we would not forget you in any of the features of our life going forward. Lord, I pray especially for young people who are setting up their lives, graduating from high school, moving to the next steps, into college, or those who are getting married, those who are just entering into new phases of their life that at this early stage of their life, that you would give them a, a true sense of a sensitivity about your lordship, your loving lordship in their life, that they would at this time set up a pattern of asking what you would have them to do, whatever it is that they are faced with. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together respond by singing just the first verse.